Welcome to The Pen and the Yod. Join Rabbi Michael Siegel from Anshayamit Synagogue in Chicago and author Jonathan Eig as they talk about this week's Torah portion of Vayera, Cecil B. DeMille and the One True God. Did you ever watch The Ten Commandments? Oh, of course. I think you had to watch it <laughs> growing up the way we did. It was on TV every year, and there were only three channels, four channels maybe, if you, watch, if you include PBS. You had to watch it. I have to say, I love that movie. I, I could watch it today. I could watch it tomorrow. I'm fascinated by the film. It's a whole really interesting history about the film, which we're not going to get into today. And Cecil B. DeMille and uh, Joseph Kennedy, who supported the film, which is a whole conversation in and of itself. What I find so interesting is when I was a, when I was a teenager, we, we, our family went on this road trip to California. We drove from Cleveland to California in a car without air conditioning, which was sort of a sad part of the story. But one of our stops along the way was Universal Studios. And I remember they took us to the place where the uh, cameras did the splitting of the sea. Oh, wow. Oh, I guess I've seen pictures of that at the studio, but I've never been there. It's like a little pool. It's nothing, right? (laughs) Right. And so, you know, I, that was that was actually kind of a stunning moment for me. But in this week's portion, we talk about the plagues and we talk about blood and, and vermin and cattle plague and all the things that we're so used to from our Passover satyrs dipping our finger in the wine and all the rest. But do we ever ask ourselves, what was the purpose of the plagues? Why go through all of these very destructive, very difficult plagues. Why doesn't God just, you know, snap the divine fingers and take us out of Egypt? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And and it's interesting to think about how much our views and how much our understanding of the story is based on that movie, as opposed to our Torah study and our years of of going to Sunday school and all of that. Uh, Because those movies, uh, that movie does, whether you like it or not, it does get in your head and it does shape, especially if you watch it as a child, it does shape your, your picture of these stories. Uh, Visual images are hard to shake. So we have this image in our heads of, you know, Moses, the protest leader, challenging the evil Pharaoh. And and I guess to answer your question, I kind of think of it, think of the plagues as um, part of a protest movement, like, you know, let my people go. No? Okay, well, then I've got another protest for you. You know, I've got another piece of evidence that, that our God is the true God, and, and you must let our people go because the God, our God, is is getting angrier and angrier. So I kind of think of it as a, um, as a, a campaign of persuasion. I, I think that you've really put your finger on the issue. And if we go back into the mindset of Pharaoh, go back into the ancient world, Pharaoh saw himself as a deity. And the role of Pharaoh was to keep basically heaven and earth in balance, right? And all the sacrifices and their entire pantheon of gods was dependent in part on Pharaoh kind of managing the god, managing the universe, right? I guess, a modern-day Speaker of the House. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, it's all about managing your constituents, right? Oh, right. And these constituents that Pharaoh had were difficult. And so when Moses shows up and says, you know, let my people go, 
it's more than just a power struggle. It goes to the very essence of the role of the Pharaoh. When Moses says, you know, my God demands that you let my people go. Well, why should Pharaoh even recognize this God? And so the drama here is about who is God and who is not. And I think that's a really interesting piece here. It really is. And, and you know, I'm not suggesting that we need to be open-minded to Pharaoh's perspective, but I do think that when you think about this as a, as a propaganda campaign or, or a marketing campaign or an educational campaign, um, so much of, uh, of history is about unlearning what we've been taught. And if you've been taught, as Pharaoh's been taught, that, you know, there's this great array of deities and you are one of them, then you need to be untaught that there's one true God, uh, because that is, you know, the opposite of everything that's been drilled into your head and the opposite of what you've built your society around. Well, I, th- I, I love what you're saying, because we have a tendency to see Pharaoh in almost cartoonish ways. Yule Brynner and the hubris and all the rest. But there's a, there's a, there's a meta story here, is that every people believed, not just the Egyptians, but this was a universal understanding that there was a pantheon of gods and there was a sun god and there was a moon god and there was all kinds of different gods that managed the universe and that their leader had to sort of manage all of this and be the intercessor. It's how people functioned. So this notion that there's one god and this one God happens to have an affinity for the descendants of Abraham would be a very hard idea for anyone to wrap their eyes, their minds around outside of the people of Israel. And we see that they also have trouble with this. But to expect Pharaoh to accede to that is asking an awful lot. Absolutely. It's uh, it's probably unrealistic. Uh, well, we know it was unrealistic. The question I have for you is, uh, were the Israelites attempting to convince Pharaoh that he should change his ways and accept one true God? Or were they just saying, let us have our one true God and, and let us go? Because it seems unrealistic to expect him to, to suddenly embrace our God. So there are two questions there. One is, What's the purpose of the plagues in general? That's the question we've been dealing with up till now. But there's also a a secondary question, which is who's the audience here, right? Is it Pharaoh? Is it the Egyptian people? Is it the Israelites? Who's the audience in this story? And let's answer the first question first. What's the purpose of the plagues? And if you examine them, I think the answer becomes evident. The first three plagues take place in the water. That is, that which is underneath the earth. The the next three plagues take place on the land itself. And the last three plagues take place in the sky. And so what you're seeing is, is that the God of Israel has dominion over the entire creation. Not the gods of, of Pharaoh, not Pharaoh himself, but only God. There is no other. In fact, God even has dominion over death itself. And that's the 10th plague. So God is the all-powerful God. I think that in part is answering what's the purpose of the plague. The purpose of the plague is to show that there is God and there ain't owed. There is no other. 
I think the answer to the, the second question is who's the audience? I think that the audience is in part the Egyptian people because they're going to have to see their Pharaoh brought to the knee, their knees and, and explain why he's releasing the Israelites, which, by the way, shows why Pharaoh is unwilling to actually let them go and chases them down at the end in that with his chariot and, you know, which ends in destruction. But there is another audience and the other audiences are the Israelites. What is going to motivate this people to leave the land? What is it going to take for them to trust God, trust Moses, to take those steps out of Egypt, not knowing where they're going and never having been in a situation where they're in control of their destiny? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And um, again, thinking about this from a historical perspective, think about the the many, many years that, that these people have been enslaved, and now you're asking them to trust something that is different from what you know from what they've been living and asking them to step out on their own and to and to take this enormous risk uh, so they need a lot of uh, proof they need a lot of uh, compelling just as as pharaoh does right it's interesting and, and i i want to come back to something you said earlier which i really kind of kind of piqued my curiosity and my thinking was the goal for the egyptians to kind of believe in god in other words, is that a possible goal? That is the goal for Egyptians all to become followers of the God of Abraham and Sarah. And there's no indication that that's the goal. You know, in other words, you would expect Moses to ascend, stand in the palace of Pharaoh and say, you see that, you know, this Pharaoh is not really God, that the God of Abraham is the one true God, ain't owed. There's none other. Follow this God and Break down all of the um, these shrines and temples to your gods, right? Forget this cult of death. That doesn't happen. There's no there's no desire for the Egyptians to all start going to shul, right? Right, <laughs> like, right, right. Like when they're suddenly not being um, called out by federation. There's none of that. Now, now there is a tradition that some of the Egyptians will follow, by that which is by the way in the movie too, which is kind of an interesting issue. But that's not the goal. The goal is for the Israelites to believe, for the Israelites to follow this God, for the Israelites to go forward. And that's the story. That's the issue. And, you know, it's interesting if you think about it. Why doesn't Judaism proselytize? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's at the core of what we're discussing. I mean, um, you know, Moses is already asking a lot. He's asking Pharaoh to let his people go and to believe that, that our God is, is true, but he's not asking them to also follow God. That would be incredibly unrealistic. But I think the, the, the bigger question that you're, you're raising is um, if, if it's so important for us to believe, and it's at the core of everything we believe, that the, the, there's one God and there's no other God. Why are we okay with all the other gods that other people worship? Is there a conflict there in that philosophy, in that belief? I think it's something different. I think the goal is, I don't think I've ever articulated this idea, but if you think about it, the goal is not to impose Judaism on anyone else, but rather to be a light to the nations, right? You've heard that phrase. And what's the goal? The goal is to create a society worthy of emulation, to create a way of thinking that believes that human beings are created in the image of God. 
and that God is interested in the lives of people, but God also has expectations. Something's being asked of us, as Heschel would say. Ultimately, the goal isn't to proselytize, to talk people into becoming Jewish, but the goal is to set an example of what a holy society is going to look like and then have people follow, have people come on board. Yeah, there's something really uh, beautiful and, and, and humble about that. We know what we believe, and, and we're going to show you that we believe it, but you, you, you do what's best for you. But I think we live with that idea. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the history of Christianity and Islam, what you see there is that it works. Jesus was a Jew, but his philosophy or the philosophy that Paul developed around him of the second coming and all the rest, you know, Jesus becomes an intercessor. The father is too difficult, too challenging to approach, but through the sacrifice of the son and, and through the love, the love of Jesus, we can approach God. Well, Islam does something similar. You know, you follow the prophet, right? And his teachings, that's the lens with which you approach Allah. Judaism is different. Judaism says, no, you approach God and we interpret the word of God. But at the end of the day, the message to Jews is whether you accept this God or you choose not to accept this God, whether you hear the voice of God calling out to you or you choose not to hear that voice, there is no other God. And I think that 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 bears underscoring because Jews who leave Judaism rarely leave Judaism to become Christians or Muslims, though there are some. The most simply don't don't engage, or some, you know, will find Buddhism, but it's not because I'm I'm choosing another God, I'm choosing a an approach to wisdom. I think that's a really interesting point uh, that you're making, and it's because it's at the very core, it's at the very essence of what we say and what we do, that they're there is no other. So if you've been observing Judaism and, and you decide to move on, it, it's, it would be odd to move on to another deity. Yeah. It's, 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 it is a fascinating topic because at the end of the day, the message to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, to the Israelites is the same message. It's the same struggle that we are facing today, which is, who is God? Who is not God? And what are the implications of embracing that idea? How does that affect us? If you accept this God and that there is no other, then how does that affect your daily life? How does it affect your worldview? How do you align yourself with that God? That's the struggle, by the way, that, the, that Moses is going to find with the Israelites. But that struggle is going to go on from generation to generation to our very own. We continue to struggle with that. And so when we come to the liturgy and we sing, after we sing Aleinu, we sing this prayer, Shehuno Teshamayim, which speaks about the creation. But then it says this, there is our God, none else. Ours is the true sovereign. There is no other. And, and then it quotes from scripture, know this day and take it to heart that Adonai is God in heaven above and on earth below, ain od, there is no other. Here's the whole theology of the, um, of the plagues. Here's the philosophy of Jewish life. It's not so much that God is one. That's not the focus. 
that is a focus. But the primary idea that we begin with is there is only God, a node, no other. I guess I used to think of it as being redundant. You know, if there's only one, why do you need to say there is no other? But um, I'm beginning to think that maybe it's not redundant, that it's um, reinforcement and that it's um, clarification. Well, thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, Rabbi. This was great.